0: All right, so for those of you who are new, we're working through the book of James, and we're on chapter four, the beginning of chapter four, and today I entitled my message, The Object of My Desire. In the summer, we have a family house on Main Island that we use every so often, and this summer we had our oldest daughter and wife join us for, I don't know, four days, I think it was. She brought, of course, they brought along their three little kids. We have three grandkids, four years old and under, and... My daughter and I sit, sit, we don't have a dishwasher on the island, huh. so gotta wash the dishes. So we're standing at the sink, washing the dishes. And my daughter starts telling me about that the two older kids have gotten into this season of fighting with each other all the time. Before they were getting along and all of a sudden they're fighting with each other all the time. And she's like, oh, what is it that makes them fight? And right away I thought, James 4, my darling, James 4. <laughs> So, open your Bible to James chapter 4. We're going to read verse 1 to 12. And I'm reading from the ESV version. I sometimes switch it up. In fact, I have different versions today throughout the message, but this passage is in the ESV. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of god or do you suppose that it that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the All right, so we are going to look at three points today. Again, I'm on a roll, two weeks in a row, two weeks in a row. Point number one, we're going to talk about the inclination towards self. And point number two, the jealousy of God. And point number three, freedom in submission. You could actually get a whole lot more points out of this passage, but I can't cover everything, and these were the three that were highlighted to me this week. So at first glance, this passage is not a feel-good passage. It doesn't tell us how great we are. It doesn't tickle our ears. And included in this audience, these are Jewish believers that James is speaking to, and and included within this audience could very well likely have been um, Jewish zealots who had previously murdered for the sake of their cause. We don't know if they were, but they very could likely have been those in their midst. And we know that jealousy, left unchecked, taken to its fullest extreme, will produce murder. So whatever the background that these Jewish believers had had, whatever extent jealousy had taken them to, we know that within this community there was quarreling, there was fighting, there was arguing going on. So point number one, the inclination towards self. Chapter four begins on the same topic of jealousy that we talked about last week. And I wanna expand on the fact that when we are born, we're born with this inclination towards serving ourselves, towards self, it's all about us, it's what we want, it's what we desire. And in this childhood state, even our, the affections of our heart, even our love is self-serving. We haven't learned to grow in that expression of love. And in the first four verses, James is basically telling them, because of your behavior, Because of what we're seeing here, you're arguing, you're quarreling, you're still living from this mindset of a childhood state, you're still living from a mindset that serves yourself, you're still living according to your old nature, according to the passions that wage war within your soul. And 1 Peter, Peter also addresses the same thing to the, to the believers that had been scattered. This isn't just a one-people group issue. This is an issue that every single one of us as believers in Christ need to look at our hearts, need to be examined, and need to grow in. And 1 Peter, he says in verse 2, verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So James starts this section. He asks a question. What's causing these quarrels? What's causing these fights? He wants them to actually think about it. Get to the root of their issue. What is causing my behavior? Why am I acting the way I'm acting? See, when we can't get to the root, we're never going to get to the solution. So he's asking them, discern, understand. Why are you behaving the way you're behaving? You covet, you fight, you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, but then when you do ask, you don't get, basically because you're still serving yourself. You're still living from that mindset of self. You adulterous people, he says. You see, James longs for their growth. He longs for their maturity, and he's not afraid to say things as they are. He's very direct. He doesn't skirt around the issue. He wants them to realize that they have to recognize the depth Of their selfishness in order to grow beyond it in order to mature and we actually have to recognize the full effect of our selfishness in order to come to repentance you see it's in repentance that we find the fullness of life and if we never ever recognize what we're actually doing by our behavior we're never going to come to that place of repentance we're never going to grow we're never going to mature there actually is no revival without tears of repentance No individual heart will revive without tears of repentance, and no nation's heart is going to revive without tears of repentance. It takes repentance. And he wants them to, he's leading them to that place because he knows he's not condemning them. This could seem like a message of condemnation, but it's not. He's leading them to a place of repentance because that's where you find life. You see, when someone has yet to understand the extravagant heart of God, when you have yet to come to that place of recognizing His goodness, it leaves us with this childish mindset that says, if I want something, I have to go after it. I have to get it. In this childlike state, my efforts are all about taking care of number one. My pursuits are driven by this desire to please me. And we begin to be left thinking that all the pleasure that we could have is found in this world and so we begin to love the world for what it can give us yet when we come to faith in jesus christ our mindsets have to shift they go from thinking all about us to thinking all about him it's no longer about us we die to our old nature we are now living for him galatians 5 verse 24 to 25 Says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. See, we no longer live for ourselves. The affections of my heart shift onto Him as the lover of my soul. And as I grow in understanding who He is, I behold His nature, I behold His character. My soul comes alive, and I begin to see that He is a God who is worthy of all my love. He becomes the object of my desire. You know, that's when you come to realize that the things that this world offers you are so empty. When the primary object is all about me, it's so empty. It's not satisfying. He is the object of our desire galatians 2 verse 20 i have been crucified with christ and i no longer live but christ lives in me the life i now live in the body i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself up for me this truth should resonate in our heart the response within our heart should be this yes it is no longer i who live it is christ who lives in me this is where we discover ultimate joy even singing these songs this morning, I thought I had this picture of me. I, I was a big sports nut. Well, I kind of still am, but in high school, I loved football, and I had a season's pass of the BC Lions, and I went every game. And I'd be in the cheers, shouting my like I was passionate. And I thought today during worship, I had this image of me being so passionate in the football stands. I thought. I want my heart to be just as passionate over this good news that we are singing about as I am in a stand-in in a football game. Because this is such amazing news. Christ in us, the hope of glory. I want to kind of give a side point today, uh, talking about the effects of worldliness on our prayer life. You see, when your life's pursuit becomes all about His will, you will see further answers to prayer. 1 John 1.14 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. But You see, the issue is that so often our prayers are still motivated with a thread of selfishness weaved in and through them. James says you don't have because you don't ask with the right motives. You're asking is all about pleasing you more than pleasing God. And I want to share a testimony I'll never forget. A time that God convicted me point blank about my selfishness in my prayer. He was not skirting around the issue at all. I actually like it when the Lord's direct with me. I'm a direct speaker. Maybe that's why he would like to be direct with me. (laughs) But I like it when he just shows me my heart. And there was a time in our marriage where we were really struggling. We had been separated for a time. And I had, you know, been praying, obviously, so what we do, but there was a time in our marriage where there were three things that I really wanted Stephen to change. And my dear husband, he's given me permission to <laughs> share this. But there were three things, and I'm like, Stephen, Stephen, I'm badgering, I'm hounding him, which of course doesn't work. And it actually shouldn't work. And one day I still remember where I was driving on 160th, and I was kind of fed up. And I was like, Lord, will you speak this to him? Because it it, it doesn't seem like anything is getting through. And then he said to me, Gretchen, your desire for him to understand this is nothing to do with him, and it's all about you. You only want him to understand this so you don't have to feel pain. He was like, whoa, that is exactly right. And he began to show me that I was not really actually concerned for Stephen's well-being. I was more concerned for my well-being because his actions affected me. If his actions didn't affect me, I probably wouldn't have been praying so earnestly. I was only praying, my prayers were fueled by my desire to keep me from pain. It was so selfish, but I had no clue that I was praying selfishly until the Lord showed it to me. And it took him showing it to me before I could repent. Which I did. I saw the ugliness of my heart, and I wanted nothing to do with it. And in that moment of confessing, in that moment of repenting, the Lord put something supernatural upon my heart that could never have been conjured up by a man or a woman. And he put a compassion upon my heart to pray for my husband in a way that served his well-being, and his well-being only, no matter how it would affect me. You want to know what happened? That night, he comes home from work, and he says, God, talked to me today about this, this, and this. The very three things that I had been badgering him about, I had been hounding him about, and God answered my prayer because my motives had changed. Because, you see, God actually delights to answer our prayer, and when we come into alignment with his will and not mine, he is right there to answer. He is right there to move. He is right there to make changes to bring redemption, to bring healing. God, I can now take delight in answering my prayer because it was no longer self-serving. You know what I love is the people of God. We get to pray in accordance with his will. Then we get to watch and we get to rejoice as his kingdom comes, as his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. something to get excited about. Point number two, the jealousy of God. So in contrast to seeing our sin, the adultery of our heart, the unfaithfulness of our heart, where we seek after the things of this world instead of him, more than him, I want you to see that in that state, he is fiercely jealous for you. He is relentless in his pursuit of us exodus 34 14 says for you shall worship no other god for the lord whose name is jealous is a jealous god and many times in scripture god will use the imagery of marriage to, to describe his relationship with the people with the people of israel he calls the church his bride you are the bride of christ and do you know that god is committed to you even when you choose things of the world he has betrothed himself to you he has made a covenant with you and god takes covenants seriously and he will not break his covenant he will never break his covenant with his people and you know god didn't look down from heaven and see a people who were so obedient so good that he thought wow they actually deserve my faithfulness. I'm going to make a covenant with them. He didn't do that. In fact, it was the exact opposite. He saw us in our sin. He saw us in our inability to be faithful to him. And he says, I'm going to make a covenant of grace. Do you see the heart of the Father? We have a God who is jealous for you, for me. And on the day of our darkest sin, in the midst of my fears, in the midst of your fears, in those moments where you and I are running after the lovers of the world, he says in those moments, I will remain faithful to you. That is amazing. If you want some reading, read the book of Hosea. Where we see the beautiful heart of God. You see, the gracious heart of God is seen all throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes we think grace is only found in the New Testament. It is all through the Old Testament because God is the same today and every day. He never changes. The Old Testament is full of his grace, that covenant of grace where he will remain faithful to us. So he gives us this extravagant grace in the face of our adultery and in our unfaithfulness as we humble ourselves before him, as we repent before him. There is so much grace for you and I. He pours out more grace. Even the song we sang this morning of mercy, there's more, more mercy. And I read this quote this week about the the greater grace that James is talking about describes a grace that is greater than our inclination towards sin. It's so true. When we've surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, sin is not going to have the final say. Grace will. And in the courts of heaven, where the enemy would go, To condemn to slander to accuse the brethren it's not going to be the voice of condemnation that wins it's going to be the voice of grace that rings out in the courts of heaven over every son and daughter of the king point number three freedom in submission The last point I want us to see today is that when our fleshly pursuits have gotten us entangled with sin, entangled with the devil, God has given us a way to find freedom. He has given us a way to know freedom from the enemy of our soul. He doesn't just say to us, he's not a father who says, you got yourself into this mess, now get yourself out. He doesn't do that with us. And where we've given the devil a foothold because we've chosen to love the things of the world more than him he becomes the solution he makes a way if left to me if i had to rely on my power to get me out of the messes i've been in i would have no chance against the devil no chance whatsoever Verse seven says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And I think I've mentioned this verse before. It's actually kind of one of my favorite verses. Well, I shouldn't say that, but it's a verse that gets me going. (laughs) And sometimes we'll just quote, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. But we completely forget that first it says, submit yourselves to God. Submitting to God is actually the key. And let me just say that if you want victory over sin, don't bother resisting the devil if you have not submitted to God first. Because the enemy will only mock you. And if we're playing the Sunday Christian, where we want God to rescue us, we want the authority that comes with the name of Christ to rescue us now and then, but if I'm not willing to live under the authority of Christ the rest of the week, who am I kidding? We're not going to find freedom. It's in submitting ourselves to God, yielding to him, coming into his presence, gazing upon his beauty, where my affections are all his. When he is my desire, I will be able to resist the enemy. You see, when the enemy, or when the desire for this world no longer rules in my life, When the affections of my heart are no longer for myself they're no longer trying to be filled with anything of this world the enemy can throw temptation in our face he can try to tempt our desire but you know what he's going to find out he's going to find out that your desire has graduated from an earthly realm from a childish realm where you're not still fighting over the toys in the toy box and he's going to realize that your desire has graduated to spiritual realms to heavenly realms you live seated with christ in heavenly places and it's no longer will his temptation even begin to have a hook in you because that's not where you live any longer you've died to self and you're all about him and so you can resist the devil and he will flee because you are living from the spirit realm from the heavens seated with christ in heavenly places see it's being in god where we find our victory. You know, years ago when we started deliverance ministry, and as I took, oh my goodness, every course I could find on deliverance ministry, there's at times where, as a deliverance minister, you'll spend 90% of your time battling the demonic. And I came to learn that that's not the best way to do it. The best way to do it is lead people into the presence of Christ. That is where the power lies. Because it's in him. That is where our victory is found. Then we resist. But we first have to repent for where we have opened ourselves up, where we have given a foothold to the enemy. We can't ignore that step. We carry on verses 8 to 10. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turning to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the language and imagery of purification in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament can associate laughter with someone who doesn't fear God. And so James is calling us into this place of humility into this place of repentance into a place of fearing God. So today we can cry out God would you make would you make my heart see you as the object of my desire? Would you become the object of my desire? As we wind down today if you have yet to die to all of those passions that wage war against your soul take that moment to repent to humble yourself ask god to actually show you the cost of your sin receive his forgiveness receive his grace can i the worship team you guys can actually come up you see when god is the object of our desire we're going to know freedom You're going to live in freedom. and It's in beholding God's glory that the power of sin will lose its grip. And it's in the face of his glory that we become changed. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen.